Welcome to an empowering and transformative season of Yoga Corner Chats. Join me, Shelby Phoenix, your host and guide as we embark on a journey of inspiration, growth, and self-discovery. This season, we're diving into the worlds of wellness and entrepreneurship, bringing you captivating conversations with extraordinary women who are making their mark in these realms. Each week, we'll explore the stories, insights, and wisdom of our remarkable guests, delving into their personal journeys and uncovering the secrets to cultivating a more balanced and fulfilling life. From yoga teachers to life coaches, therapists to entrepreneurs, each guest will bring their unique perspectives and experiences, offering invaluable guidance for navigating the paths of wellness and entrepreneurship with grace and resilience. At Yoga Corner Chats, we believe the power of women supporting and uplifting one another. We celebrate the diversity of our guests and their expertise, creating a space where their voices can shine brightly. Together, we'll explore what it means to define wellness and success on our own terms, finding inspiration in each other's stories, and forging our paths to fulfillment. So whether you're an inspiring entrepreneur, seeking guidance, a wellness enthusiast eager to learn new insights, or simply someone who craves inspiration for living your best life, this season of Yoga Corner Chats is for you. Tune in every week to join our captivating conversations and discover how you too can embrace the transformative power of yoga, wellness, and entrepreneurship. Together, let's manifest our dreams, support one another, and create a world where success and well-being go hand in hand. Subscribe to Yoga Corner Chats on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform, and be prepared to be inspired, motivated, and uplifted. The journey begins now. Good morning. How's everyone doing? Happy Thursday, May 11th. It is 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, and this is the first episode of Season 2 of Yoga Corner Chats. So for those of you who don't know me, I am your host, Shelby Phoenix. I am a yoga instructor, mindset coach, and owner of the Yoga Corner, and I empower yoga teachers to succeed as entrepreneurs through authentic marketing and mindset coaching. And today... Today on Yoga Corner Chats, we are joined by Becky Atten. Is that how you pronounce yes, your last name? Atten. I just want to make sure it's right. Awesome. Um, Becky is an openly autistic and ADHD yoga practitioner and teacher, nature lover, and self-identified nerd. Their teaching approach is grounded in lived experience and follows a neurodiversity-affirming framework to help make yoga more accessible to all brains and bodies. And in this episode, we'll be discussing the topic of affirming neurodiversity, exploring what it means to be neurodiversity affirming, and why it's so important for the long-term mental health of neurodivergent people. We'll also be diving into Becky's experiences as a neurodivergent yoga teacher and exploring how we can all work towards creating a more inclusive and accessible yoga practice. 
And I actually stumbled upon Becky's website when I was doing my own research about just neuro yoga and neurodiversity in general. <laughs> and I automatically felt the pull to ask her to be a guest on the podcast. Before we go any further in the interview, I like to start these lives by leading us um, through a few I deep do the breaths. Same Is that okay thing. with you? <sighs> All right. If it's possible, plant your feet firmly on the floor or the ground. And if it feels safe to do so, I invite you to close your eyes and just um, sit up nice and tall if that's possible. And I invite anyone listening to join us as well. Use your belly to push all the air out of your lungs until you're completely empty. And then begin to slowly inhale through your nose, filling your belly, expanding your rib cage, and filling all the way up to your collarbone. And then letting all the air out your mouth. We'll do that again. Another deep breath in through the nose, belly, rib cage, collarbone. And let it all go. One last big deep belly breath. Fill up. And get empty. And whenever you're ready, Gently open up your eyes, come back to this space. I wanted to give you the opportunity, Becky, to introduce yourself sure, and yeah. what too. you do. Um, I feel a little bit like um, the, the phrase, uh, uh, jack of all trades, master of <laughs> life. Um, I am, so I am a a yoga teacher and a entrepreneur. I have a um, project I started right after I graduated from my 200 hour yoga teacher training called yoga for neurodiversity, which is what you were obviously referring to how we found each other here. <laughs> um, um, but that's just one very small piece of kind of who I am in the world. And I work um, for another organization organization full-time because my my yoga project um, at this point in, in, in this phase uh, at the beginning isn't enough to sustain my livelihood um, but but the other work that I do is is really well aligned um, from the perspective of values it's you know it's social work it's working with a lot of neurodivergent people yeah. And I get to use some of my strengths that come along with my neurotype, like having a knack for, for rules, um, working yeah. with human resources and understanding labor laws and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then I get to teach a little bit of yoga um, at, at the other cool. job. And then I also work with the local autism society um, here in Southeastern Wisconsin um, with other adults on the spectrum. So I was facilitating a social support group and recently just kind of decided to take a step back and be a participant again. I need the support of a community. Yeah. 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 Can't always be the one leading every time. <laughs> so. 
<laughs> yeah, and you have your um, energy in a lot of different spaces that where you are supporting other people. So yes. that makes a lot of sense. So we're talking about neurodivergency and before we get too <laughs> deep into that topic i think a lot of people don't know yeah. what that means i was wondering if you could define so let's i will start with the word neurodiversity it's kind of a big word <laughs> but if you break it down it's <laughs> really um neuro which is a word that just means pertaining to the nervous system meaning our brain our spinal cord, all the peripheral nerves that run through our, our body into our limbs. Um, so it's not just the function of the brain, but the entire body that's innervated. Right. Um, and diversity meaning differences. So it is just a term that, that yeah. used to describe the, the natural variations in nervous systems amongst human beings. Um, and fun fact also, the term itself was coined by an autistic person, Judy Singer, who is a sociologist. So she in the 90s um, and it's mm -hmm. it's made its way into 2023. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I actually was a classroom teacher for four years before and like leading up to COVID. And there's a lot of kids in my class and then my school that were neurodivergent. And I sat through like, I don't know how many like special ed type meetings. And I'm not like, I never heard that word one time uh, until <laughs> TikTok. Yeah. yeah, so it's definitely not a medical term, um, but more of a, a term, yeah, more of a social term. Um, but it's been been yeah. used now so much like within the medical community um that i think it's it's just important to acknowledge that while it it's an important term and it you know just like the word biodiversity it can be used in a lot of contexts um yeah. it does have its roots yeah. um in the neurodivergent community and that's probably another good word to define because people might know what that means um, yeah but neurodivergent is a term also coined by an autistic person, Cassiani Asasamasu, in like about the year 2000. So, um, and this is a term that was originally meant to be used to describe anyone with a nervous system that significantly diverges from what um, essentially the, the majority of other peoples would look like. Um, but more so, right? not even necessarily that looks like the majority of others, but just looks like what we as a culture, our culture um, expect right. nervous systems to look like or function like. So, um, yes. And I think there is, at least now, a tendency for people to use the word neurodivergent to describe things like autism and ADHD, which are considered innate forms of neurodivergent, meaning um, they've got a genetic component. There's, we're born with a mm. nervous system that develops differently from the get-go. Uh, but I do wanna, right. uh, I guess, clarify that, that the original term was intended to include also acquired neurodivergence, which is fancy way of saying, mm -hmm. 
Mm -hmm. um, differences in the nervous system of the physiology of the nervous system that resulted from environmental uh, ex experiences. Right. So like uh, traumatic experiences, uh, physical mm -hmm. or, or emotional or psychological trauma, um, like a physical injury, for example, or even uh, using a lot of like drugs can alter the nervous system um, or even even a long-term meditation practice. So just, just keep in mind, you know, I think a lot of people are used to hearing it used as a way to describe innate neurodivergence, but, um, but it is meant to describe anybody who recognizes themselves as having a nervous system that is significantly different from the majority of others in their Yeah. And also, like, these, some of these terms are like umbrella terms, right? And I'm kind of imagining like, like the spokes go in kind of all different ways, right? Like there's like a spectrum of ways you can be neurodivergent, whether it's innate or um, environmental, a range of like conditions or disorders that might be identified under that. And then within all of those variations there's like a spec spectrums and overlap absolutely in all of those as so, well and 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 again probably if again if you look at it as an umbrella um you would see things like down syndrome um adhd and autism we've already mentioned epilepsy and other seizure disorders but also personality disorders mood disorders um all these other diagnoses that you can find in the DSM, um, but also people who may not be diagnosed because the reality is you can be neurodivergent and not know it. Yeah. Your whole life, you were working in a different operating system and wondering why you maybe felt like you were failing constantly. Um, and the reality is that there was never anything wrong with me for example I'll speak from my own I just didn't recognize right. how I was different because kind of like a fish doesn't know it's in water <laughs> yeah yeah <It's>, <laughs> you don't talk about the way that we learn and think in um in school for example to understand that like you know this, this kid I'm sitting next to is we're in the same class and we're learning the same material but we are picking up completely different pieces of along the way yeah and our paths to understanding are going to have a totally different timeline oh right right <laughs> i like can just relate to all of that so much because i was just in september um diagnosed with um adhd but also something i had never even heard of which isn't even technically a diagnosis um, which is nonverbal learning, disability or disorder. Um, and I was like, like wait, <laughs> I'm so confused. Like, how did I not know this my whole life? And like, what does this even mean? And some of it actually means you have like really crazy strengths in certain areas. Um, and when I look back, I can see things in my life like from beginning to current that are like how did no one see this like um so 
like what you were just saying, I just resonate with a lot. I just wanted to ask a follow-up question if you feel it's relevant to answers. Like, what has been your journey with kind of realizing that yeah. your, your brain was a little different? You know, I, I liken it a little bit to the journey of exploring, you know, gender identity or orientation. Um, yeah. you know, I, I identify as queer and that's not something that I, like there's a test out there that you can take. Um, <laughs> and I think with, with, although with, with certain forms of neurodivergence, like ADHD, you know, there are obviously diagnostic criteria and you go, go to a, a doctor and get a diagnosis. Um, but at the same time, diagnosis isn't always accessible. So if you are going through yeah. life and you've just always felt a little bit like maybe you were born on the wrong planet or <laughs> born in the wrong <laughs> era or there's something that everybody knows that they're not telling you and you can't figure out, like they, that might yeah. be a clue yeah. that there's some neurodivergence. Right. <laughs> We haven't been yeah. diagnosed with yet, or you just haven't or haven't stumbled on on the the label for yet. Um, so, yeah. I think yeah. that most of my life, I knew that there was something different because kids at school treated me differently. Um, I had a, I was, it was a lot easier for me to talk to adults than to talk to my, my peers, um, and. It, and I always felt like, for that reason, like there was, even though it, academically I did well in school, like I felt like there was something wrong with me fundamentally um, that, that I didn't seem to have the same social aptitudes that my peers did. And the way that, even the way that I spoke, I think made me come across as pretentious. And some of it is a little bit of an art. Like I, I, I wasn't yeah. feeling yeah. competent, so I was trying to overcompensate for that by vocabulary. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. And in any case, like I went through my life like that, and it honestly had a huge impact on my mental health. By the time I was a teenager, I was really pretty significantly depressed to the point where, um, you know, I was hospitalized several times um, in my you know young adulthood and. It wasn't until my mid-20s that I, after like many years of therapy and lots and lots of different psychotropic medications, I finally was referred to a psychologist who had knowledge of ADHD and how it presents in people who are assigned female at birth. I got an ADHD yeah. diagnosis in my mid-20s, <laughs> um, but at the time, there wasn't as much much the information about ADHD wasn't as accessible as it is now I think so I didn't know how yeah. or what that meant for me I didn't really know where to go from there um as far as how do, what does this mean for my needs and how do I meet them um and even yeah. as I started to get more an understanding of myself from that perspective it still didn't answer all the questions about why I was struggling and I was still struggling a lot going through periods of burnout um what I would think think of it as like a regression, I called it, um, where I would behave in ways yeah. that I'm like, I haven't acted this way since childhood. Like, what is wrong with me? Yeah. Um, yeah. And eventually I, I right. 
thanks to the internet, stumbled on, um, I think it was a YouTube video of a, of a woman talking about being diagnosed autistic as an adult. And I, I had yeah. this whole physiological reaction listening breaks. It was so similar <laughs> um, to my own upbringing and experiences. And that led, that led yeah. over time, long story short, to seeking out um, a doctor who could diagnose autism in adults who is experienced, which is also hard to find. And, and then getting what kind of that yeah. last missing piece of information about my, my neurotype, my identity, um, yeah. which really opened doors. It gave me a vocabulary to talk about experiences that I didn't even know were different from most other people's and um, helped me connect to other yeah. people who shared my experiences and could understand in a way that so yeah yeah I think that um sometimes when people don't understand like why you would need a diagnosis or like even maybe their kids like why would you pursue this as an adult and I think part of it is just feeling like validated <laughs> like your experiences are validated your like intuition was correct like something was off you're not like you know crazy or like because people second guess you too or you get diagnosed with all sorts of different things try all sorts of different medications it's like once you have an answer it's just kind of a relief I, in a I way felt did you feel that sense of relief yes and i didn't realize how isolated i was feeling it wasn't that i didn't have friends or that i didn't have moments of joy and happiness i did um but it just felt like in most of my relationships, um, the role had to be so specific for me to have a relationship with someone. It was so, I couldn't be myself. I, um, yeah. As now I've come to understand, I couldn't unmask um, and allow yeah. like the traits yeah. to show, um, like I had to, depending on whatever the relationship was, if it was professional, you know, I had to always wear this professional hat. So it was like, you know, kind of like this, this yeah. metaphor of like, I had a hat rack. Um, I had a different hat for each person that I had a relationship with. And it, yeah, <laughs> I never yeah. take the hat off. When I was with them. That was going to be my next question, because I think that this is important also is like when you were defining neurodivergent, it's divergent from like the norm. And the norm, like the research on a lot of these things is done on like men and boys, like white men and boys, cisgender white men and boys like decades ago. And a lot of that information is still like carried into today um luckily that's changing and there's more information available but in addition to that complication of like trying to figure out what's going on also there's like how society treats um you know girl little girls even like you know so that they do end up masking their symptoms making it harder to navigate that um 
I wonder if you have any like insights into yeah. that kind of history. And and if if you're like me and you really want to nerd out about it, I can I can share some resources for diving deeper. But um, it so so <laughs> it's true that the majority of our knowledge about and I'll I'll use autism as an example because it's what I'm most familiar with. Yeah, um, our knowledge about autism comes from studies that were done primarily in, in the early days anyway um, with uh, as you said cisgender white boys and men um, who oftentimes also represented more of like the middle or upper class so it wasn't yeah. until recently that there's actual information now available on what autism looks like in uh in, in black people, uh, in people assigned female at birth, women, trans people, uh, and also like, like people yeah. who aren't from the upper middle class. <laughs> so it's not, right. but it's right. also, you know, considering, um, I'll just say like, you know, I, I see a therapist and, um, and she's older, she's like retirement age and her um, studies were done, you know, like in the 60s and 70s, when nothing was really known about autism. And in her case, like she hadn't really ever gone back to learn the new information. Um, and that's true for a right. lot of mental health professionals that, you know, you learn what you learn. And then, you know, you might get into a, a specialization where you have a lot of knowledge about a very, very narrow subject. Um, but unless that subject is like autism or whatever the neurodivergences that you that you want to support, chances are you're operating on outdated information and stereotypes, and that can be really yeah. really harmful. Um, because in the case of autism, for example, you know when we talk about autism in the general population, you ask just a random person um, what they know about autism. More more likely than not, you're going to get references to popular culture like like the film rain man <laughs> or yeah like, you know other movies or tv shows <laughs> where autistic characters are represented but not necessarily in a way that is um inclusive or represented full spectrum of, of yeah. human diversity and intersectionality so right um so i guess to answer your question <laughs> there there is a there is a gap in what we know about how autism presents and how other forms of neurodivergence present if you're not a white guy. <laughs> I think that was important when I learned that because I had that stereotype of like at least ADHD in my head like it's the bouncy boy like I didn't even think adults could have it honestly like and I was like oh, there's something different in women, and I read it, and it was, like, so far from the stereotype. Yeah. I was like, oh, wow. Yeah, so, <laughs> so, much so many of um, the you know, women and non-binary folks that um, have diagnosis like autism and ADHD um, tend to share that a lot of their experiences are very internal. They're not the obvious. So, yeah. which, you know, kind of makes sense that we fly under the radar because if we're not internally, like, just playing all yeah. these obvious signs of being different nobody's going to question what or not 
we might have this diagnosis unless as an adult, we start to learn more about ourselves and be like, yeah, there's something here. There's, there's, (laughs) there's something here that I was missing. There's some information about myself. So, yeah. So what does it mean to be neurodiversity affirming and what does it mean in the context of yeah so I think the simplest way I can describe it is just to be neurodiversity affirming so is to acknowledge and perhaps even celebrate the fact that we are all different and um yeah it doesn't mean you know and neurodiversity, I should say the word, you know, if you're, we're using the word neurodiverse or neurodiversity, this is inclusive of neurodivergent people and also um, the, the, a term called neurotypical. So a neurotypical is not synonymous with normal. It's just a term that's used to describe um, people who meet what we consider like most neuronormative expectations. The way that society thinks the person's nervous system should function if you function close enough to that that you're not disabled um are you're neurotypical so um so anyway that there is that there's that diversity there's whether you're neurodivergent or not um and we don't know by looking at somebody (laughs) whether have a diagnosis of any kind, right. whether they're neurodivergent. Um, and even people who aren't neurodivergent are going to have traits um, that, that might fall within, you know, like the autism spectrum. So these are all human traits. We right. just categorize them according to like yeah. what diagnosis they might, you know, they might be most commonly seen alongside of. So, so where, where I'm going with this is kind of funneling all of these differences down into the simple idea that we are all different, uh, whether we have a diagnosis or not, yeah. we all have traits that make us different from one another. And all of those differences deserve to be accepted and also supported. So our needs matter. And sometimes we have needs that are very, very different. They might look different. And for that reason, we might not even have, we might not even recognize in ourselves like that this is a need that, um, or even how to go about asking for yeah. support around it um, because it's not something that we've ever seen or, or heard talked about by other people. Not, it's, not, right. um, it's not a neurotypical need. <laughs> Right. So to be neurodiversity right. affirming is to acknowledge this diversity and to say that differences are normal. It's normal to be different. All differences yeah. Yeah. deserve acceptance and support. Yeah. Um, I'm kind of wondering, like, if there's someone, a yoga teacher or any, you know, anyone else who just like functions in the world who is neurotypical, why do you think affirming neurodiversity like could be something that's important to them or maybe something they could consider yes. exploring a little bit I think bit a more. lot of us get messages from 
people in our lives, whether it's parents, teachers, the media, you know, social media, movies, TV, what have you, um, that there's a right or a wrong way to be. And it can yeah. lead us. And I like, I am uh, saying us, but I'm speaking from my own experience as usual. Like, you know, I felt like there was something about me that needed to be fixed and until I got yeah. to a place of yeah. accepting that it's okay to be different. You know, I was constantly yeah. feeling like a failure um, and, and trying to, like I found journal entries from my teenage years where I was, you know, writing things about fixing my flaws all the time. And when you live yeah. um, with this feeling of like that there's something wrong with you, it has a profound and, and impact on mental health. So, so it's really important yeah. for people to get the, the opposite message that being different is normal and, and, and yeah. even to celebrate differences. Um, rather than trying to celebrate conformity because it is it is going to help people feel included and it and the more, more that yep even neurotypical people accept and and highlight and celebrate their differences um the more that gives i don't know if permission is the right word but permission um for those of us who are neurodivergent to openly do the same and not feel yeah. Um, like we're going to be social. Yeah. Yeah. Like creating like space, a little space in the yeah. room or on the table. How does being neurodiversity affirming like make yeah. yoga more accessible? In um, so I'll offer a couple of like specific examples. There are yeah. a lot of ways that one, a person can come about finding the practice of yoga. Um, so that could be you know, living in a community that has a yoga studio, um, and you, you know, take a class, it could be finding it through a book at the library, um, finding it on YouTube, like finding a video about yoga on YouTube. And depending on like, what path you take to learn and, and get introduced to yoga, um, it can it can create a a relationship with the practice of yoga um, that is that either encourages you to continue or maybe shuts it down as like this is not for me right I don't perhaps I worry um, but you know I because yoga and mindfulness are so important to my own self-care needs like I personally I want people to be introduced to it in a way that makes them feel like it's for them regardless of who they are and where our life yeah um and if their yeah. only exposure yeah. to yoga are um instagram accounts for example where people are showing off their their inversion practice you know bodies are beautiful right and that's all good stuff um but that's not accessible for most people on a physical level um and if and if people right. aren't seeing all the different ways that yoga poses and practices um, can be done different bodies and different brains, yeah. um, then it may turn them off yeah. to a practice that otherwise could have immense health benefits and provide them with an opportunity right. for connection with themselves and with others. So in, in a, in a yoga practice, um, having as a teacher, for example, Having 
having an understanding of at least some of the ways that um, that people differ in the way that they think and feel and interact with the world can help inform some of the options that you offer to make sure that yeah. you're, you know, you're never going to be able to offer cues that, that are for every single person on the planet. Like, so, so don't worry about right. like, I know inclusivity is important, but I don't think it's possible for every single class to be completely inclusive for every single human being on the planet. I just, <laughs> that's yeah. a lot. It's a big ask. Um, but think about, about like who you <laughs> want to teach to. And if you're yeah. offering a centering practice that, you know, you're asking people to be seated and stay still, consider that maybe for some people, stillness can create a lot of anxiety or discomfort to the point where it's a barrier and offer a movement option. So, so, so re it's really, right. I think we get it in our heads when we use these terms like neurodiversity affirming is this big word and it has like, I have to get a certification now so I can be a neuroaffirming yoga teacher. Yeah. No, you don't have to. Just start thinking about other people. <laughs> get to know people who are different from you. Talk to people who are different from you. So you can start to get an understanding of how they're approaching the practice differently and then how you yep. teach. It's just, you have to start somewhere you don't have to start with every every uh, every single inclusive practice that's out there. It's just start start somewhere. Start by just listening to people who are different from you, and then seeing seeing where that takes you as far as. Yeah, yeah. I, I had another guest, Maddie. If you're listening, Maddie, hi. <laughs> and we were talking about chronic illness and yoga and she said something so similar about accessibility and being inclusive and how that word can just be popped into like a description of any yoga class and then like you know and kind of like in the in the energy of trying to help everyone like exactly no, you help no one like <laughs> and, and i think it's normal um, for there to be if this drive for perfectionism in our culture so and it yeah. and yoga teachers aren't immune uh we have egos too you know i know, I know like <laughs> I, I teach a class and i i want everybody to get the maximum benefit but the reality is that that's not going to happen at least not to the extent <laughs> i i think i want it to um but if i can send out a right. message at the end of the class um that that they don't have to do what I tell them that if, if, if a practice right. isn't serving them, that there's always another option they can take and that they don't have for me to tell them that they can take it. Like I've done my job because I've yeah. given them that sense of bodily autonomy and choice. This is your practice yep. and there is no right or wrong way to practice yoga. It's a practice of connection. So however you connect to your mind yeah. and your body is the right way. So. Yeah. I teach kids yoga, middle school kids mostly. And, you know, like they often are not like there by choice or like not interested in what I'm doing. And I always um, say like, you can't, you don't even have to participate. Just lay down on the floor and you are doing yoga. And like, you have this choice, like no other place in school do you get this amount of freedom. And like nine times out of 10 by the end, they're like, yeah, okay, I want to join it. <laughs> I I like to say at the beginning of my classes, 
observing is learning too. Like the yeah. pay is valid <laughs> and I, I don't take it personally. <laughs> like if he just lays on the mat during the entire class, but again, like that's yep. how we're neurodiversity affirming. We are not making any assumptions about the experience someone is having just because it might not show on their or in their yeah. words. Like, yeah, I have to trust that they are listening and taking in and they're making the choices that are right for them. Yeah, right. Yeah. And that is like empowering yes. them as well. For you, like in the realm of teaching yoga or even being a yoga practitioner, how have you set boundaries or, you know, asked for created accommodations yeah. for yourself? Um, I, I, so when I graduated from my yoga teacher training, it was um, like right in the middle of lockdown 2020. And yeah. A lot of people were moving from doing things um, in person to a digital platform. And I found for yeah. myself that 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 actually opened a lot of doors for me because I had already I, I have I am the kind of person that is very impacted by the energy in the room, so to speak, when people yeah. the person teaching um, was really I, I didn't hate it, um, but it was really, really, really draining for me. And I just yeah. decided, you know, like I just needed, I needed a place to start um, to practice teaching. So I just decided to start yeah. recording videos and putting them on YouTube. And um, I realized in doing that, 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 that was probably what my teaching was going to look like. Um, not a lot of, yeah. you know, going to studios and standing in front of classrooms and, and, and teaching um, to, to rooms full of people, IRL, so to speak, um, but offering, offering right, right. videos or, or um, virtual options and, and more in a workshop format because I am at heart, like I love, I love to info dump, or as I say, info dump from yeah. the heart, I love to present information and um, in a workshop yeah. format, I have the opportunity to to give people um, experiences of practicing, but also explain, you know, some of this practice is all about, yeah. like the history um, or the options that I'm going to offer and why I'm offering them. And I, everybody's right. Everybody's learning style is different, and if I can offer um, information. And then a way to integrate it into the body. For me, that's really fulfilling yeah. because that's the way I, I enjoy doing that. Yep. And if someone else learns that way, great. And if not, there are millions of other yoga teachers. So you can go find, you can go, right. <laughs> keep going and, and find somebody who speaks in the way that um, connects both best for you. But, but it took a lot of pressure off me to recognize that I didn't, I didn't have to go out and teach classes in a public studio in order to be a yoga teacher. Um, I also didn't have to teach anything that was beyond what I already understood. I could keep it simple. 
Um, yeah. And which is what I still do. Um, even after a couple of years of teaching, I don't try to teach people how to do crow pose. Um, I'm more likely even to, I, I don't do flow classes. I, I will just teach kind of standalone practices. Um, most, most of which yep. are practices out of my own daily self-care that I can offer to other people in hopes that maybe it's beneficial for them um, that don't require a lot of, you don't have to worry about safety. There's not a whole lot of like alignment to think about more about right. the connection with the body and, and trying to have an experience that feels good. Yeah. I think that a lot of people, te yoga teachers, people who do, who, you know, practice yoga that like, um, like I used to work at a studio where it was like, if you're a yoga teacher here, you have to come here and take a full one hour, 90 degree vinyasa class. And if you don't come at least three times a week, like you're basically a hypocrite and like, it has to be like you're dying at the end or it's not really like a yoga class. <laughs> and, or like, you know, if I'm a yoga teacher, I have to be teaching at a studio or leading retreats or doing whatever, or I'm not a real yoga teacher. If I'm not posting this, you know, these poses on Instagram, I'm not a real yoga teacher, but I, I feel like part of being affirming to differences is like, we don't all have to be the, the same yoga teacher. You don't have to practice every day. If you don't want to, you yeah. can, yes, you can exactly. lie on your own floor. <laughs> like just When I do one-on-one <laughs> -on -one, um, yoga with, with people, and sometimes it is like, I'll, I'll for example, I have a, a, a client I work with who I created, uh, you know, a morning mindfulness practice with a visual guide, pictures of, of, um, of the practices. And it, it was like, you know, a five minute maybe um, right. it doesn't have to be, be like a whole hour <laughs> of yoga to count <laughs> every little, every little practice, as you know, I'm sure, um, it just, it just continues to reinforce that, that muscle memory. Um, so that maybe right. one day when you're feeling really anxious, you'll remember that you have this tool in your toolkit and you'll use it and find that it offers some relief in right. the moment. Nothing, nothing in yoga and the practices, um, you know, asana or pranayama, so breath and movement are going to cure anxiety or depression. They are tools right. and, um, and yeah, teaching people those tools, um, and practicing them even just for a couple minutes is a yoga practice. So, yeah. Um, this question just came into my head. I noticed, like, I hear, I've heard this message a lot as far as like mental health, like depression and stuff. Like, you know, in the wellness space, people will sometimes say, like, you don't need to take your medication, just like, practice yoga and take nature walks and like kind of like that toxic like this is your cure-all or whatever like or like if you do yoga like that doesn't even exist or whatever I'm wondering like what have you experienced in yoga spaces that maybe are more harmful or didn't yeah. feel affirming you know one of the biggest things for me um and, and 
I, I can't even pinpoint like one specific time that this happened because it just happens so often um, is when I show up for like a class and the teacher cues how I'm going to feel. And, and mm. when the first time I did a, a, a meditation practice that was focused on the breath and the teacher was saying something like, just let your breath be how it is. Don't try to control it. The moment that that word came control, of course, I'm trying to control my breath. Like, like I can't <laughs> breathe. And all of a sudden I'm in a panic attack and I'm thinking, yeah. It was horrible. And I, I don't think that most people have that experience, but I do think that there are enough people who have that experience um, that it's worth considering it as a yoga teacher. Yeah. Why, um, why you're trying to tell someone how they should feel rather than simply allow for all sensations and all feelings, um, every single practice say you yeah. offer because it that's what that's that's being neurodiversity affirming it's recognizing that just because most people might feel a certain way um most people might feel relaxed in shavasana doesn't mean everybody will yeah. i didn't feel relaxed in shavasana anytime i was in a public class because especially if my eyes were closed i was always like thinking someone was going to step on me and it and it's really yeah, hard yeah. to get the nervous system to a place of calm Right. Yeah, and then you're just like kind of paranoid that feeling and not like relaxed. <laughs> it's reality. So I think yeah. the biggest thing for me is just um, not telling not telling people how they should feel or get, making them feel like if they don't feel relaxed in a certain pose that they're doing it wrong. Um, giving giving people space right. to feel what they feel, <laughs> what that is, and and right. I always like to remind my students. Um, and if you feel nothing, if you don't know what you feel, and if you feel nothing at all, that's normal too. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, how do you think, do you have like anything that's specific that is a practice or something supportive that could make yoga spaces more welcoming more supportive more affirming yeah that's a good question and you know at one point in time i would probably speak to like the sensory environment and i do think that is it's worth mentioning um that the uh, the a way that a that a person enters a space like if you're talking about a brick and mortar studio or the way that a person enters a virtual space even um, you know, whether or not you're providing people with an email ahead of time or something that that gives them um, a sense of what to expect, um, that can make a big difference. Yeah. And regardless of like, you know, what form of neurodivergence someone has, there tends to be a lot of anxiety <laughs> for the community. Yeah. So providing information about what to expect and making allowances um, for human beings for our biology for our biological responses like you know having um having a culture where somebody can get up in the middle of a class and go to the bathroom if they have to without feeling like they're interrupting uh, or even having a right. culture where somebody can yeah. ask a question how radical is that in the middle of a class <laughs> out loud like <laughs> this is pretty radical <laughs> 
because I, I feel <laughs> yeah. like in so many classes I go to, there's a lot of rigidity. And even if the teacher doesn't mean for there to be, it's just kind of like, if no one else is getting up and going to the bathroom or asking questions in the middle of the class, like, I don't, I have permission to do it. Right. So giving permission yeah, right um and right. showing and if you're a yoga teacher and you're going to public classes as a student like the most radical thing that you can do is meet your needs even if it's not what the teacher is cueing or offering because that's going to give all the students in yeah yeah totally to <laughs> um and and i think so so i i don't know maybe i've like gotten off track of i don't even remember what your question was <laughs> No, that those were really great tips on like how to create a more affirming space. It just reminded me a few weeks ago, I was subbing at a studio and I play music in my classes. And this one woman like in the middle of class was just like, excuse me, like, I can't like hear the you and the words in the music at the same time. Like, I just can't hear both at the same time. Yeah. And I was like, thank you. Like, I am going to turn it off, and that's it. Like, it's fine. <laughs> and afterwards, I wanted, I went up, and I just said, thank you, like, for letting me know, because otherwise I wouldn't have known. And, like, I want to create this, a space, like, to your class. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, it's fine. <laughs> that, to me, that is such a gift to, to have, a, have created a space where somebody feels safe enough to speak up and ask for their needs to be met. Like that just yeah. doesn't happen a lot. And yes, it's so true. Is right permission to ask for what we need. <laughs> so we're coming towards the end of this hour and I probably could ask you like 500 more questions but to kind of come to a close I'm wondering um if there's anything else you want to share any other um like experiences you've had any other tips or strategies for anyone listening or just any yeah. messages you want to end with let's see well I think let's, I'll keep it really simple and just say, you know, when I, when I do a lot of, um, when I do neurodiversity presentations, I like to remind people that because we are all different, we are all special or none of us are, and we are all normal or none of us are because what's normal for me is different from for you. And mm -hmm. I think it can, um, just be really validating to be reminded that whatever your experiences are, um, whether they're similar to other people or not, that that those experiences are just as valid and it's whatever your needs are, even if you don't know what they are, which is totally normal too, <laughs> like those needs deserve to be met. And if you are finding yourself, um, feeling like the people around you maybe aren't having the same experiences and aren't as understanding it. It's okay. Like to explore whether you might be neurodivergent, even if you don't have a formal diagnosis and you don't necessarily need a formal diagnosis yeah. to, 
to be part of the neurodivergent community. It's neurodivergence isn't a it's not a medical diagnosis. It's it's more of a social label, and um, and you get to decide if you feel like that label fits for you. And um, once you and to join the neurodivergent community, it's not like you gotta go to and sign up for anything. Yeah. <laughs> No, it's it's weird. You know, you're like this. This label fits for me. This feels. I I I relate more to the experiences of other neurodivergent people. Um, So there is no right or wrong way, in my opinion, um, for anyone to identify, and you don't have to prove anything to anybody to give yourself a label of neurodivergent if if that's supportive for you. So. And that's where I'll, I think that's, that's, that's where I'll end is, is just with this, um, this message that it's, it's okay to be different and it's also okay to, to seek out more information about yourself if you've gone through life feeling like there was just a piece of information that, that was missing um, that would help you to better meet your needs. Yeah, seeking information in a way is 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 filling a need like just like allowing yeah, yourself to be part curious of stu- yeah I yeah think. right the self-study in the practice which is yeah yeah so yoga and yoga practice isn't always physical it's there are um intellectual pieces to it learning and studying yourself doesn't always have to be done on a yoga mat yeah i'm so grateful that you took this time to share your knowledge with us and your experiences. I really appreciate your time and, um, and everything you've shared with us. So thank you so much for joining. I'll be publishing this episode on Monday if things go well. (laughs) I I enjoy learning out about neurodiversity. So awesome. So well, maybe we can do it again sometime because we could do like 16 different episodes Anytime. on like just this topic. <laughs> All right, Take care. friend. Thank you, you so much. Have a great day. Do you want to keep in touch between podcast episodes? If you want love notes from me, where I share all the ups and downs, tips and tricks, sad times, good times, successes, and failures of coaching, yoga, entrepreneurship, and life, send directly to your inbox you are going to want to get on my email list. Sign up to receive my free visualization ebook. This ebook is designed to be like a self-guided retreat to guide you through the journey of envisioning your future and making your dreams come true. Click the link in the show notes to subscribe to my mailing list and a link to the PDF will be sent straight to your inbox. Have an amazing day. Chat soon.